and welcome to Redig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting from two shipping containers in Bushwick, Brooklyn, located next to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. And there is, on top of this container, a garden that produces food for the restaurant. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. And we are the ladies of Groundworks, Inc. We design, build, and maintain gardens all around New York City, except in the winter. Now we're tucked inside our warm little container, (laughs) talking to our horticultural friends, and that's what we do in the winter. Um, And this show aims to bring the culture to horticulture. And today's show is sponsored by Hearst Ranch, which is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable, native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. So today we have a really wonderful guest. Um, our show is going to, we're going to go south on this winter's day, Alice, with a great guest. Hopefully it's warm down there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we have Paula Gross. Hi, Paula. Hi, Paula. Hello. How are you? Oh, fine. Cold for here, but warm for probably up there. So what's the temperature like? I always like to compare notes with people um, in different parts of the country. Yeah, it's probably about 40 here right now. Well, that is cold for yeah, cold you. cold for us. Yeah. 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 Uh, you've been having a pretty cold December, haven't you? We have. It's been colder than average here, um, and we're all complaining about it. Yeah. Ditto, ditto yeah. here. <laughs> but, but nothing like what you all get up there. Nothing like the precipitation. So yeah. we had a few sprinkles of sleet, and, you know, they had to close half the schools. <laughs> you yeah. guys are not prepared with your... Uh, <laughs> we're not. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, we always love in the winter to talk about tropical plants and to go to warmer climates and sort of fantasize that we're there <laughs> instead of in cold New York. And... Um, I noticed your book, actually, in uh, one of my favorite um, uh, publishers is Timber Press. They publish a lot of wonderful um, horticultural and gardening books. And um, your book caught my eye because of its title. It was called Mm -hmm. Bizarre Botanicals. Um, And I said, I need to find out more about this book, and I want to share it (laughs) with with everyone. Um, It works. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you're the co-author, right, Paul, along with Larry uh, Mellencamp. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you are also the assistant director of the Botanical Garden there at the University of North Carolina. Is that right? University of North Carolina here Charlotte. in Charlotte. In Charlotte. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. And Larry's the director, so we're also co-workers. Oh, so it's a tight little family. <laughs> it is. So tell us, uh, what was the impetus for the book? What made you decide to write about this particular sort of niche in the plant kingdom? Well, you know, really the idea came to us from um, Tony Avent and Timber Press. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Timber Press had the, I guess, sort of the germ of an idea and approached Tony Avent, who's a Raleigh nurseryman that um, a lot of you may know from his entertaining catalogs. That he oh, yeah. He was, he was actually on our show. That, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he, uh, they, they kind of had this idea together, and he was just too busy selling plants, and he had... Um, 
talked, uh, seen Larry speak many times about just sort of oddities in the plant world, and he suggested Larry. And so as soon as they contacted Larry, he asked me, and we realized that we work with these plants every day. We work with these plants that you would call bizarre, odd, weird, and um, we share them with our visitors, but this was an opportunity for us to share them with a wider audience. Cool. Well, I'm really glad you did. You know, as Alice mentioned, Tony was on the show um, uh-huh. a few months back. He was he was great to speak with, and he actually wrote um, the foreword for the book. He did. And um, I found what I found really interesting was, you know, so many people, the general public, there's. I always feel like they're underwhelmed by the plant kingdom, and they're often like really surprised to hear about the amazing ways that plants make sure that their genetic material is passed on. Why do you think people don't really appreciate plants and their diversity and their like sort of amazing uh, abilities? Right. Poor plants. <laughs> you know, they're the, the mother of our like planet. The mothers people. of our planet. Exactly. I know. <laughs> and there and I compare them to our mothers, meaning that so many of our own mothers, human mothers, do amazing things, but we sort of take them for granted because they're they're there supporting us, always doing things for us, but maybe don't have the glamour um, that our superstars do, and plants are like that. Yeah, um, yeah. And and so they're always with us, they're a bit in the background. And then another reason, I think, is that in our modern society, we don't have the day-to-day tactile connections with plants that, like, through 99.9% of human history, people have. Right. Um, so if we're not, um, besides maybe, you know, chopping up vegetables, if we're not growing plants for their medicine or their fiber or understanding all these connections, um, we just don't, you know, they're, they're not at the forefront of our mind. Right. And then, of course, also they don't move and bite. At least most of them don't. And I know. It's easy to raise. and fur and snarl. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, like if you compare, you know, it's easy to raise money for a panda. You know what I mean? Panda bear. Like, let's save the pandas or the whales. They're so graceful and beautiful. They're so cute and and cuddly, you know. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I like the way that you described it, that people have, and Alice and I talk about this on the show a lot, that people Mm -hmm. have lost their connections, a very fundamental connection to the plant world, which we depend on for our very existence, Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. And so the idea with this book, a little bit of sneaky, you know, idea here is that if you use those sort of rock star plants, those plants that do grab attention because they do something surprising, like, for instance, the carnivorous plants always draw attention because they turn the tables, you know, and, and, and eat insects, as it were. Yes. If you use those sort of shocking or more bizarre plants to kind of get people, you know, hooked a little bit. Yeah and growing some plants of their own or, you know, just, just getting that interest sparked, then, then they can get into the more deeper stories that the plants have to tell. Reconnect with them, you know, yes. more fundamentally. Well, one of the well, I think that's what Paris Hilton was trying to do when, you know, that famous <laughs> photograph of her with her legs open, right? Exactly. So we so need to have, is- wait, we have to have plants acting like Kim Kardashian <laughs> and Paris. Should we have, like, videos of plants acting badly, Paula? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good art project. Paul, yeah, uh, plant sex tapes. That's what we need. <laughs> I'm on it. This winter, it's going to be my pet project. 
plants plants reproducing in unusual ways, and that's what we're going to talk about, actually. Um, well, one of the books that, one of the plants that I found really interesting that I didn't know very much about um, was this desert tortoise plant, or the mm-hmm. dios, I'll probably mispronounce it, correct me if I, if I do, dios, diosoria elephantipes? Yeah, elephantipes, yeah. Okay. And... That uh, that's a plant that here at the um, greenhouse we call the uh, the the tortoise with the vine growing off of its back <laughs> because it literally looks like and is about the size once it reaches maturity of of a tortoise. They're sitting on the sand with his head and his feet tucked in. Yeah, um, yeah. And yet there is this green twisty vine with round heart shaped leaves growing out of it, and we surprise people when we say that. That is the plant. Like they'll yeah. see the vine, and then they'll they'll ask, "What is that? You know, yeah. warty kind of tortoise shell looking thing on the ground?" We'll say that's the base of that plant, and that's in fact that plant exists half of its year, half of its season, simply with that protected root top, sort of stem base mm-hmm. and root top, which is called a caudex. Mm-hmm. And this time, it is sort of halfway underground, covered in like thick um, bark, essentially. That looks just like a tortoise. Just like a tortoise. It's furrowed into little um, squares, sort of like a tortoise. And you can almost, you know, you could count the rings, actually, of of how old that plant was, because it does put those on seasonally, sort of like a tree. But, Mm -hmm. you know, half the year it just sits like that. And then it sprouts this pretty vigorously growing vine out the um, top of it there, and that's in its native habitat when the rainy season comes along. It takes advantage of that to just grow, flower, and then it will go dormant back to its little tortoise shell. Where, where is it native to? Um, Southern Africa. Mm. In fact, a lot of um, what we consider weird plants come from extreme environments, mm-hmm. either the desert, which is an extreme, but a rainforest is an extreme too, which you wouldn't naturally think that. It's kind of like plant paradise, but think of, um, at least for us over here on the east side of the country, like South Florida is kind of like paradise, and yet it's overpopulated with people. With New Yorkers. There's a lot of competition, <laughs> That's in right. a sense. Yeah. So in the yeah. rainforest, because it, it's so wonderful in a way for growing there's a lot of competition and that makes it an extreme environment sure right well that's sometimes that's uh part of the reason why carnivorous plants adapted so well to their environment and and thrive isn't that true and when, when people as you were saying when people think of bizarre plants the first thing they think of are the carnivorous plants right Right, and they live in a particular kind of extreme environment, and the extremity of their environment is um, poor nutrients. They live in a very um, in boggy places, right, where water will leach out nutrients, and also often where the soil is very acidic, mm-hmm. and so um, their basic nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium is just not as available. And so they have found this, well, <clears throat> I anthropomorphize plants a lot, and some people will fuss at me for that, but I can't help it. We're, we're, we're a lot like plants. <laughs> well, well, we're humans. So of like, they, yeah. they evolved to, um, to these adaptations to where they can utilize the, those nitri- nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium from insects to get that through the soil because it's so nutrient-poor and um, acidic. 
Right. Yeah, one that caught my eye in the book was the Chinese finger trap. Can you describe um, that plant a little bit for well, our audience? The, that's the Western Australia pitcher plant, mm-hmm. or the cephalotus, and I called it a Chinese finger trap because, um, first of all, these little pitcher plants, they're hollow leaves that are tubular that grow along the ground. Um, it, depending on the different type of pitcher plants, they could grow in different ways. But the little uh, Chinese finger trap plant grows in little rosettes on the ground, and they're cute. They're like tiny little um, one- to two-inch pitchers. But if you stick your finger down in the hole and you try to pull it back out, it, it grabs. It hurts. That's amazing. That's, it, 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 I know. And it, it's, they just ask you to touch them, and then they bite you. I know some people like that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I sort of describe it in the book as a, um, like a chihuahua that turns into a Rottweiler when you, you know, you go, oh, so cute. Yeah, exactly. It looks kind of, yeah, it looked like the kind of thing that would tempt you to touch it, you know? Yes. We're going to feature that in our plant sex tape, Alice. Awesome. <laughs> Who's going to act that out? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm going to cast I'm going to audition people next week. Uh, any <laughs> listeners just dial in. Give us your information. <laughs> um well personally I love the Saracenias. Those are my personal favorite of the um carnivorous plants and a lot of people when they see them um when i've worked in nurseries and people come up and say oh what are those beautiful flowers and of course those are not the actual flowers and what i find really interesting about them besides their their beautiful pictures which are um you know very dramatic with their coloring and their and their model stripes stripes yeah um they have yeah they have a weird weird kind of flowering structure don't they they do, um, and of course, from the plant's perspective, in a way, they, they want you to think they're flowers. They, they want to attract you with those colorful leaves because they're trying to attract you to fall down into them and, and drown and die. But they do have true flowers, and the flowers themselves are a bit odd. Um, and in nature, they flower before the new leaves or the new pictures come up for the season, because if they were flowering and they had these attractive leaves at the same time, they would essentially be eating their pollinators. You know, they're How, trying to attra- uh, that's, that's cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. They're trying to attract an insect both times, but with the flowers, they don't want to kill it. <laughs> yeah. They want to attract it. Because it has have, a job to do, right. Absolutely. So they wouldn't want to, you know, mix their uh, metaphors, as it were. But anyway, the flowers themselves are quite large, and they have, um, you know, here we have to go back to our botany, the, the stigma of the flower, mm-hmm. uh-huh. the internal, the center of the flower there where the female portion little portion of it that receives the pollen, like if you think of a lily, it's that little glistening sort of bit at the top of Mm -hmm. um, the pistil. Mm -hmm. Well, on a pitcher plant, that, imagine that has blown up into like a big umbrella that comes around and wraps around the top of the flower, and the petals hang down um, beneath the lobes of those sort of umbrella-like stigma. So it's it's really a, a bizarre flower in and of itself. I'm sure the Victorians had a great time with that plant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you could have a great time with your expose. Your That's right. I, <laughs> I'm making my list now. <laughs> so basically you're saying, so these bog plants are really interesting. They have to get pollinated. Yes. And they have to get fed. 
So they've they've organized, they've they've adapted so that um, they kind of you you know they they get the services out of the insect and then they eat it. Mm-hmm. Right. They need to separate either in space or time their flowering and seed function from their nutrition function. Wow. Imagine their political meetings. <laughs> that would be interesting, too. Yeah, exactly. So let's go beyond looks a little bit now and talk about uh-huh. um, plants which exhibit um, seemingly bizarre behaviors. One that I thought was really cool and wanted to share was um, something called the telegraph plant or the Dismodium gyneris. Uh, Desmodium gyrans. Oh, gyrans, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's right. Some, a few plants do move, um, and besides their slow growth that we can't see, and some, some people will probably be familiar with the sensitive plant, the one where you yeah. pinch its leaves and they leaflets and they fold up. A uh-huh. little less known is this Desmodium gyrans or um, telegraph plant, whose little, it's, it's in the bean family, by the way. Um, and it, in and of itself, the plant doesn't look, you know, particularly weird. But if you look closely up at the tip, at the growing tip, there's a whole array of little leaflets that don't seem to be full-sized. Well, those little leaflets, if you watch long enough, they will make little ticking, almost like a second hand on a clock that jerks, mm-hmm. little ticking jerks. They'll just sit there and move in little patterns. Um, they also look sort of like someone holding up the semaphore flags, you know, on a ship that you may have seen in a World War II movie or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. They're just kind of jerking their arms around to make signals. Well, these uh-huh. jerk the little leaflets around all on their own. So not in response to our touching them. Um, just They just sit there and twitch. And so why do they do why. that? Why? why do they do that? <laughs> and, and nobody knows for sure why they do this. But Larry's, um, my co-author's theory, is that it's to discourage herbivory or an insect eating the, the young growing tip up there or maybe to discourage them from laying eggs or some other sort of uh-huh. damaging function uh-huh. is that with their little insect um, brains, um, they're not terribly sophisticated and movement just is distracting. Of course, it can be attracting too depending on what they're looking for, but sure. normally an insect looking for a plant is not looking for movement. Right, right. It would probably frighten them. Or yeah. they're waving to the parallel universe. That's what <laughs> I think. Me. Right? It could very well be. Or Dr. Seuss. That's very Dr. Seuss. It is very Dr. <laughs> Seuss-ish, the telegraph that's plant. the other great thing about these bizarre plants is you can create your own stories for them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we have to take a break. We'll be back in a minute. We're talking about bizarre botanicals. One Stay second. tuned. Hi, welcome back. You're listening (laughs) to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. That's a song by 32 Crush called Planetarian Plant Objects. What do you think of that, Paula? (laughs) I was impressed. How how did they have this queued up? (laughs) Magic. 
I waved my arms. Am I just hearing this? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't this in your brain all the time after writing that book? (laughs) So um, under the category of hiding in plain sight... Um, Mm -hmm. were some of our favorite little plants, the lithops or the living stones. And I know Carmen is particular to baby toes. I love the baby toes. I love them. And don't they look like little green baby toes? Yeah, I know. (laughs) So can you tell us about their adaptions for survival? Sure. Um, Those plants live in the harsh um, southern African desert. With very um, with no shrubby or woody plants, so it's just full sun, exposure, sun, yeah. reflective sand, um, and so they can actually a plant. You think of it as wanting light. A plant undergoes photosynthesis and makes food from light, but plants can get too much light. Plants can burn, uh-huh. sunburn, uh-huh. even, and they they even have a way where if they receive too much light. They do something called photorespiration, which is to use energy instead of making it from the light. And so these plants have adapted. There's actually kind of two things going on. But one of the things is they've adapted to just hide most of their plant body under the sand and only expose a little bit of it at the top to gather light mm-hmm. so, that, so that their whole plant body is not exposed. And so... Um, in, if you were to go to the South African desert, you just these would be almost level with the ground, mm-hmm. and they would essentially have plant body stem under or leaf succulentness underground, and just a little window peeking out. Of course, the other thing going on is that they're storing water in those leaves, right. and that they need to protect that from everything else in the desert that's dying of thirst that wants to get to their water. And so that's where part of the camouflage nature of them. Not only are they tucked underground to hide from the sun and from would-be predators, but the living stones, anyway, have um, mottled patterns and kind of a brownish color. They're not even, they don't even appear green. That's so right. So they really do look like stones. And mm-hmm. here at the gardens where we've got them growing in a couple of different dishes and pots, we've found some stones that really look identical to them and they just amaze people when we point out that those are actually plants yeah i know i love them and i love when the flower comes bursting out of the center it's really cool when they right. when they do go into flower but they really yes, do have i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i was just going to say they really do have this like whole secret life that's mm-hmm. so so private and disconnected from human life you know they they do, and those you know those flowering the, the plants in the desert when they flower so many times they're they're trying to hide except when they go to flower and attract mm-hmm. something and then they just pull out all the stops so yeah. the flowers yeah. of the living stone almost cover the plant when it flowers I mean it takes up as much space as the two little fat leaves there of the plant. Yeah, yeah. And the, the thing, um, the, the reason I wanted you to talk about the baby toes, other than the cute name, was that um, the windows that you were describing, it's so mm-hmm. cool that the plant is kind of opaque, this like silvery greenish, you know, sort mm-hmm. of stem. And then the top looks like a glass. It's clear. Yes. It, has a, it has a glass top that lets light 
penetrate oh, cool. and go inside. So it looks like a window. That's what I mean. Like it, there's this whole other world. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they call them window leaf succulents. Yeah. And that literally is so that the light, it's more pe- penetrate, the light can penetrate that tissue up there and not so much the the more... Um, you know, foggy looking tissue on the side yeah. and it, it comes in through the top there and it sort of bounces around. It's been shown that it'll bounce around in there and can then be collected by the chloroplast. It's like a skylight. It is mm-hmm. really, it really is. cool. You know, and as if you're in the desert, you're stumbling around, you could easily kill it like this. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's this life form that's adapted so specifically to survive. Mm-hmm those harsh conditions and you just won't even notice it it's so subtle and beautiful you know um another thing that i love about plants and and that's where the plant sex tapes will will be really good um is that they you know you think about humans and their interests in different kinds of behaviors well i think plants are way more sexy and way more diverse in getting their (laughs) genes passed down don't you think paula yeah we're so obvious about it (laughs) Yes. Because they can't run down a mate and jump on them. Yeah, they can't wink. They can't have a glass of wine. No. You know? So one of the ones that I thought was really interesting was this um, mother of thousands or <laughs> Callan Cody. No, you're just talking about a hooker. No. Well, this mama. Let's talk about this mama, Callan Cody Delagoensis. Is that Delagoensis, right? Delagoensis. Yes. Mm-hmm. How does she get her genes spread? <laughs> well. It's- it's interesting. So many jokes. I'm She's sorry, Paula. Different. Paula, we're not just picking on you. We pick on all our guests, yeah. just so you know. Oh, no. It's fine. It's fine. Go so on. The mother of thousands. <laughs> The interesting thing is she's kind of going for a short-term survival oh. strategy. Okay. Yes, because the long-term survival, as far as a species go, is to get some diversity of genes out there. And that's why, you know, pollination and the crossing of different um, individuals gives you that diversity that you hear about. But what Kalinkoe Delagoensis, their mother of thousands, does is says, eh, I'll just clone myself. I'm good <laughs> enough, right? I'll just make more of me, exactly. And so what that this plant does is it's a way of asexual, we call it asexually propagating. Mm-hmm. So all along its little succulent leaves, each little leaf tip or tooth, there will be a plantlet or a clone of itself form. And even with little roots, and they will drop off and get spread around and grow into an identical clone of that mother plant. And it can actually be quite a a pest. It's very effective at getting itself around, and they're all identical clones. Now imagine if humans had that ability. Yeah, thank God we don't. (laughs) I don't think we'd be as responsible (laughs) as we should be. (laughs) I'm glad we don't have that ability. I agree. I agree, Paul. Even though it's fun to visualize. (laughs) Yes. Well, let's talk about the orchid family because, of course, you have to, you know, you can't really talk about bizarre plants without talking about orchids. Um, And this is the largest family of plants. Is that right? It is. Um, the orchid family and then the aster family or sunflower family, they, they kind of duke it out as far as who's the top of the list, you know, depending on what um, taxonomist has classified, what, right. you know, the plants accordingly. So they kind of go neck and neck, um, mm-hmm. orchids and, and asters. But um, orchids generally come out on top. And 
course, to us, we think of them as being so diverse, too, or we think of them as being exotic because they have such amazing forms in the tropics. They also exist on every continent except Antarctica. So, you know, we've got orchids. You've got orchids yeah. here in New York. We've got orchids here in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, but it's really those tropical Tropicus. ones yeah. that just have some amazing adaptations for pollination. Yes. Tell us and about maybe, one that you find particularly interesting. Well, I, I really love the catacetum orchids, or we call them the trigger orchids, um, because they um, they have sort of a surprise factor. Uh, the the flowers themselves, and all orchid flowers, have a similar structure. If you look very carefully, they have a lip, it's called. And if you think of a lady slipper orchid, and it has that sort of pouchy right. petal, that, that's a great example of a lip. And so not all orchids can you quite determine that as clearly as on a lady slipper, but then they have what's called a column, and that's where the female reproductive and male reproductive parts are kind of all smushed together and modified very specially for an orchid. Well, a trigger orchid has, coming off of that column, it has this little trip wire. It's like a little finger of tissue that's poking out and kind of curls up, and when an insect or a finger <laughs> comes along and, and just touches that, it Bam! It throws something out onto the or onto the finger or onto the insect, and it really shocks you. Like it, it'll make you draw your breath back, and you look down, and on your finger is a little patch of glue, and on it is stuck two packages of pollen. And so it wow. has thrown. I mean, just forcefully, like instantaneously, thrown this big backpack of pollen stuck on with natural glue onto your finger or if you're of course you're an insect onto your back and it's it's shocking and you can't get it off like if you shake your finger (laughs) it will not come off now we can of course (laughs) scrape it off but i'm telling you you can't shake it off but that's funny the the weapon that it uses to protect itself is actually its own dna that's yeah fantastic and and see really you would think well then Okay, so you've attracted an insect and you've shocked the heck out of him by, <laughs> you know, dumping this pollen on. So w- would he go again? Yeah. And yeah. Spread your, How but, stupid but they do. They do. <laughs> That's going into the yeah. plant sex tapes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, they just keep going back, don't they? I mean, they just don't learn. But these insects are attracted to these orchids because um, this class of orchids and, and quite a few others are involved in their own reproduction. Oh. They're going for a particular scent that the orchid is producing mm-hmm. that they use to attract mates themselves. Oh. And so they're going to go they're going to go again to these orchids because the orchids hold something so valuable to them. So even if they get whacked on the back, they they go back. <laughs> they go back in. <laughs> Must well, be worth it. <laughs> it is for them. Well, the the one that I want to kind of end with, Paula, that I when I saw this picture in the book, I had to know more about it because I had never heard of this plant. Um, it was called a fox face plant, and I'd like to describe it from what it looked like to me to our audience. It looks like an inflated disposable glove, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes, bright, bright yellow, bright orange, bright yellow. So tell me about that. Yeah, what's with well, the that? Funny thing, the funny thing about that plant is I call it like a botanical Rorschach test yeah. because people see different things in that fruit. Yeah. 
So it's, that's it's, the fruit? It's the fruit of the plant. Okay. And it's actually a solanum, solanum mimosum. And the solanum is the solanaceae family, which oh. includes tomatoes, eggplants, um, peppers. And it's probably, you know, more closely related to an eggplant, mm-hmm. um, if you can kind of imagine that. Yeah, yeah. But the little fruits, as they form, um, some of them get, you know, these finger-like extensions off the back, maybe two, three, four, um, and the plant has many different common names. Octopus fruit is the most um, G-rated one. Okay. Then you get cow's udder. Okay. Okay, because some people think it looks like a cow's udder. And then you get to nipple fruit. Now, oh, I don't boy. know what kind of nipples they've been looking at. This but, is a family you know. show. What's next? Well, yeah, I thought see dis- what you want. To. I, yeah. I thought disposable glove. Yeah, like, well, that's, yeah, that's exactly. a good. Yeah. And, I, and when you said that, I said, you're right. Yeah. So, well, so that's an interesting. Where is that native to? That one is native to the New World tropics, and okay. so it would be an annual for us, sort of like growing an eggplant. Gets a bit, the plant gets a bit larger, and it gets some spines on it. Um, but if you started in the spring after it warms up, by Halloween, you'd have fruits. Yeah, I've never seen have, that in any botanical you, garden. Have you eaten it? Is it edible? It's, it's poisonous. Oh, it's poisonous. Not oh right, because it's in poisonous. the yeah. Mm. yeah, not deadly poisonous, but you know, not edible. In fact, um, as I was doing a little research on that one, I found that it's a popular cut flower. I mean, it's really a fruit in Southeast Asia. Oh, oh. So they, and, and if you Google it online, you can, you can find some. So you'll see the stems that are, that have multiples of those fruits on there. Oh. And they're used in like arrangements and flower arrangements. Hmm. Yeah, it really intrigued me. I'd never seen anything like it. And I've seen a lot of a lot of plants. Yep. So, um, so as a as a horticulturist who's been surrounded, you know, by plants for probably most of your professional life, what what have you taken away from this process of re- researching and writing this book? I mean, it's you know you've really focused and narrowed on like the the sort of strange members of the family, as it were. Right. Well, I think what I've you know taken away is that. There's really never a reason to be complacent <laughs> when, when dealing with the natural world. Yeah. Is that you, every time you go and you dig a little deeper, um, you find that plants, animals, fungi, bacteria all have stories to tell. Yeah. And that you just have to slow down a little bit and look into them. And so I, I think that I, I took that in, in a greater appreciation for the diversity of the planet and how sort of sentimental I am about that and how I think that connection with nature is rich and a rich and important part of our lives Mm -hmm. that we should not um, drop (laughs) just because there's so much um, other sort of digital things going on. So so I guess it sort of reaffirmed why I got into plants in the first place. And, and you know, we can all get like a little complacent or a little bored. Yeah. These plants help sort of yeah. shock you back into realizing that there's a lot going on out there. Yeah, yeah. and that and that connections um, exist on many, many levels, you know? Yes. And adaptation um, is a really remarkable trait that we can all use in our own life i think (laughs) that's right 
So, so, so if people want to uh, view uh, live uh, some of these plants, or if they want to possibly purchase um, mm-hmm. some of them to bring them closer to their own lives, are there some resources that you'd like to share, um, Paula? Well, sure. Certainly as far as viewing them, um, botanical gardens that have conservatories, because a lot of the plants in this book, not all of them, but a lot of them are tropical or need to be you know, grown indoors. So botanical gardens are great places to see them. And I know you've got you know, Brooklyn Botanic Garden there, which is a fantastic botanical yeah, garden. We yeah. love that so, place. Yes. As far as seeing plants, you know, I'd recommend that. Um, and then as far as buying them, one resource that that really has a lot online is a company called Glasshouse Works. Yes, yes. Yeah, and they have quite a variety of tropical plants. And, and so Stokes Tropical is another one. Mm-hmm. But if you start poking around and certainly, you know, through a botanical garden and asking the staff there, you can find nurseries or greenhouses in your area that are going to carry some of these plants. Cool. And a few of them are sort of pass-along plants um, that you may find that you have friends that are actually growing. Mother of Thousands, of course, is, is one of those that seem to be tucked away here and there in people's uh, porches. Yeah, and the stone plants are actually readily mm-hmm. available in markets. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So and the carnivorous plants, too, because they draw so much attention. The only yeah. thing I'd say about those is don't buy seeds. Yeah, <laughs> buy the actual. It's Sometimes not you see it. them marketed yeah. as seeds, and you're like, oh, my yeah. God, that's going to take, take 20 years. years. <laughs> right. Right. And boggy so. water. Yeah, and no right. five-year-old's going to wait. No. You know, for that. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks so much, Paula, for being on the show and, and sharing your book and your stories. Oh, it's been a pleasure. definitely made today a lot more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. The show will be available for listening via archive at heritageradionetwork.com and also via podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Hearst Ranch, and to Jack Inslee for producing Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to Safari by Man Astro Man. See you in the garden. Happy gardening. <laughs>